I think you're going to enjoy our telecast tonight because we're going to have a, a few unusual things for you. In the long ago year of 1998, MLB dreamed about what the future held for baseball. There's the DeLorean with the gull doors uh, heading out that brought uh, Scotty in to throw out the first pitch. Presumably, the DeLorean hit 88 miles per hour, even though Scotty's pitch sure didn't. Scotty underhands the ball as he takes the uh, baseball from the robot. Because America's pastime was transported into the future. We are getting set for this game in the year 2027, and he wants to know where to go. Ken Griffey Jr. ran out sporting a silver glove. Clubs wore their hats backwards on top of pullover polyester uniforms with giant wraparound logos. The Mets, sick of being a second-class team in New York, relocated to Mercury. But the foundations of the game itself, the equipment, the players, and the fans, remained the same. It's not quite 2027 yet but it seems like MLB whiffed on much of its forecast for the game's future. The promotion ignored the foundations of baseball to focus on aesthetics. What does baseball's future truly have in store? I talked to folks for whom baseball is their business, and they told me some of the real changes to expect in America's pastime, along with the silver gloves and teams on Mercury. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Swartout. Baseball's two oldest components are its namesakes, the base and the ball. As for the base part, MLB has been using rubber squares called the Hollywood base for almost 70 years, and their dimensions and standards have been codified in the MLB rulebook. First, second, and third bases shall be marked by white canvas or rubber-covered bags, securely attached to the ground. The bag shall be 15 inches square, not less than 3, nor more than 5 inches thick, and filled with soft material. The ball part is far more important. Like the bases, there are standards for an MLB baseball. They are still hand-sewn when it comes to the seams. That's Tom Verducci, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. But they're basically made in Costa Rica. They basically have been made in a similar fashion in a similar venue for at least, uh, I want to say, the last seven or eight years, possibly longer than that. The ball is a rubber core, wrapped in yarn with white cowhide stitched together around it between five and five and a quarter ounces, with a circumference of nine to nine and a quarter inches. But recently, pitchers like Justin Verlander have been asking whether MLB might have changed the formula, juicing the balls and pinning some extra dingers on him. I mean, the numbers speak, speak for themselves. I know Mr. Manfred says the balls haven't changed, but uh, I think there's enough information out there to say that's not true. I think the biggest question for baseball to answer is does the baseball itself have something to do with the increase in home runs? Because it happened all of a sudden. It happened in the second half of the 2015 season. And since then, home runs have gone up by a double-digit percentage every year. Now, you look across history, and you try to find cases where the home run rate increased in consecutive years by double digits, and it's very rare. And the cases when you do find that, you can point to very explicit, obvious reasons why it happened, whether that meant going back to the 1920s when the ball literally was changed, uh, whether it meant the 1940s when players came back from service in World War II because the better players you know, were gone away from the game. Or you could point to expansion in the 1990s, uh, two rounds of expansion sent home run rates soaring for a couple of years in a row. 
You could look at the designated hitter being added in 1973. All very specific things that you can see, say, oh, that makes sense. I understand why home runs are up. The second half of 2015, 16, and 17, we don't have expansion. There's not a reason why there's an influx, influx of more home run hitters. And there's certainly no indication from MLB itself that the ball has changed. So why are we seeing this spike in home runs? When you're talking about a double-digit increase in home runs, and the statistics show that balls hit the same launch angle and the same speed are more likely to be a home run in 2018 or 2017 than it was in 2014, that's why a lot of people are saying, let's look at the baseball. There's something about this baseball that has contributed to this spike in home runs. And I hope the research that NLB comes up with here at least sheds some light on what is different about the baseball because it certainly appears there is something different about it. This difference was particularly noticeable in the 2017 World Series, where home runs increased by 35%. Pitchers that threw sliders had trouble controlling the movement of the balls, insisting that they were slicker than usual. High fly ball to right. Back at the wall, it's gone. Jock Peterson is second to the series. I'm still at a loss as to what happened, to really truly explain what happened to the baseballs in the World Series. I had someone actually from Major League Baseball tell me that he took the so-called blind taste test where he held balls behind his back and he could tell without looking at them which one was a World Series ball, which one was a regular season ball. So they were definitely slicker for some reason. I guess it had something to do with the way the baseballs were rubbed up. Hold up. This is where baseballology gets weird. While rubbing and scuffing balls in-game gives pitchers an unfair advantage by making the ball fly unpredictably from their hand, all MLB baseballs are rubbed before the game with mud. Special baseball mud. Major League Baseball Rule 301C says before every game, umpires must rub down six dozen balls to get the slick shine off of them. Major League Baseballs, once they're manufactured and boxed, they're not quite ready for play. They're essentially too white and they're too slick. And so to combat that, since about the 1930s, I believe, Major League Baseball has used a special form of what they call rubbing mud. It's actually taken from a delta off the Delaware River, Lena Blackburn's rubbing mud. But I think where inconsistency develops is because you have different people rubbing up baseballs. It's not the same person rubbing up the same way. Some may use more, some may use less. There's famous stories about different baseballs being rubbed up different ways to suit the intentions or preferences of a starting pitcher. For instance, Randy Johnson was known to tip the clubhouse attendant extra money that he can rub up the balls to be especially dark. Of course, the darker the baseball, the more it would favor the pitcher over the hitter. Way back when, there were stories about teams having two sets of baseballs, that there were balls to be used when their home team was batting and balls to be used when their team was in the field and they didn't want the ball to go as far. So maybe the World Series balls were under-mudded. It's a simple fix to standardize mud application practices. But that's not what MLB did. They instead issued guidelines on how the balls are stored, because that too matters. What happens to these baseball in the interim between manufacturing and actually when you see it used in a major league game? Where are they stored? 
That's an important question because, as we know, in Denver, where they do use humidor to make sure that the balls have the same humidity, because otherwise you're talking about playing at altitude where the balls might dry out in the course of being stored or even in the course of a game, they'll fly farther. And now baseball is saying, wait a second, why don't we do uniform storage protocols throughout baseball, not just at altitude in Denver? So that's what they're doing this year, where the balls get shipped now to the clubs, and before they could be stored anywhere. It could be in a hallway, in a ballpark, uh, exposed to elements in terms of different temperatures. Some had it in a back room of a clubhouse somewhere. But now teams are obligated to store the baseballs in climate-controlled rooms. Soon, all of the questions may be answered. MLB is compiling a study on the power surge since the second half of the 2015 season. It may reveal if they have balls that are too clean, or balls that are too dry, or any number of tiny minutiae that could affect the balls between manufacture and first pitch. But even if they do find a difference, they might not squeeze the juice out of the balls. It could just be the future of baseball. Baseball, the arguing over baseball, the sport, and the actual physical baseball itself, it's got a long history of tradition in baseball. <laughs> it really does. Um, you know, pitchers are always accusing the ball of being too lively, and the hitters are saying there's nothing wrong with the ball. It, it plays well. Or the fact when pitchers were dominating the game in the late 1960s, they were arguing for changes made to the ball. That's when they got the DH. So I think it's part of the yin and yang of the game. The game does go in cycles, offense and defense. And and right now we we're just at the beginning, I believe of an offensive revolution in the game. It did start in 2015, and we pulled out of a pitcher-dominated era uh, probably the previous decade. We're just at the beginning of this era here. Not sure what the research is going to say, but no matter how it turns out, I guarantee you the debate will continue. Baseball fans will be watching the juiced ball saga closely because it's affecting stats, which are themselves a core component of the game for both MLB and fantasy baseball. Well, you mentioned the ball. As fantasy players, we have to adapt to all of that every single year. That's Don Drucker, fantasy baseball blogger and author of Rotisserie League Baseball. In an environment where you have the record number of home runs in 2017, if home runs is one of your categories in your league, which it is in almost every league, you have to look at that differently when you're evaluating players the following year because a home run is not nearly as valuable in 2018 as it was even four or five years ago. Fantasy baseball isn't exactly the future. It's been around since the mid-80s. But using sabermetrics or advanced statistics to beat your friends is pushing the game forward. New composite stats are being developed constantly to try to give fantasy owners a way to see past the trappings of a player and instead see their production. Tell them, Jonah Hill. Okay, people who run ball clubs, they think in terms of buying players. Your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you need to buy runs. The book and movie Moneyball illuminated how the Oakland A's use sabermetrics to win on a budget. And now, just about every major league club has an advanced stats team. What is fantasy if not owning a team and managing resources? Here's how Sabermetrics can take a baseball card stat and turn it into a predictive winning strategy. 
When people were looking at the back of baseball cards in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, they would only see the most basic information. They would see what a player's batting average was, how many home runs he hit, how many runs he batted in, maybe how many runs he scored. If you look at only at his batting average, the, nu the number is, is not necessarily going to tell you what he might be projected to do the following year, or in some cases, even the following month in a given season. So, for example, if, if I have you, you're a player on my fantasy team, and you hit 240 last year, I might say to myself, well, gee, that's not very good. Maybe we're not going to, maybe we won't keep Harry for the next season. I mean, I haven't played since middle school, but 240 feels low. But there's a statistic that's been developed through Sabermetrics called batting average on balls in play. And the acronym is B-A-P-I-P. It removes home runs and strikeouts from the formula and tries to determine what a batter's average was on balls that were actually in play in the field. Probably the average Major League player has a Babbitt of somewhere between 290 and 310. If your batting average was 240, but I go in and look at your Babbitt for last year, and your Babbitt was 310, what essentially that tells me is you hit in a lot of bad luck last year because you had pretty much a league average Babbitt, but you didn't have a league average batting average. Yes, I knew I was better than 240. Using BAPIP, fantasy fans can decide whether a player is just in a slump or, you know, bad. Sometimes, the stat heads will even be able to predict the game better than the pros. Obviously, none of us claim to be as smart as Billy Bean or Theo Epstein, but a couple of years ago, there was a pitcher for the Texas Rangers named Giovanni Gariardo, and he, he had a good record that year, 13 and 11, and he had an earned run average of 340, which is also very good, especially in the American League. And he was becoming a free agent after that season was over. But if you looked inside the numbers, you, you would notice two things about his record that might change your opinion. The first was that his fielding independent number was was 4.00, which is, means that he was very lucky during the season. The other thing was that his strikeout rate per nine innings was only 5.9, which is extremely low in today's environment. It means he doesn't really miss enough bats. He doesn't have the great stuff that causes swings and misses. But despite those factors, the Orioles signed him to a two-year, $20 million free agent contract after that season. The Orioles are happy to announce that we agreed to a two-year deal with Giovanni Gallardo. The following year with Baltimore, he won only six games and he had an ERA of 5.42. Giovanni Gallardo put the Orioles in a big deficit in the top of the first inning, giving up three runs. Yes, he absolutely did. So the Orioles were wrong and the, and the fantasy people were right. Some fantasy leagues are more representative than others. Real numbers guys don't go for that snake draft one year nonsense. The original game, as outlined in the original book in 1984, was written because the, the people that wrote it felt that they wanted to have an experience that was similar to owning a baseball team. So in other words, they wanted to be able to choose players, they wanted to be able to decide what to pay for players, they wanted to be able to trade players, they wanted to be able to keep players from season to season. So all of those aspects are part of the format that I play. 
So when I draft, a, like I have a draft coming up a, a week from Saturday. When I dra- if I draft a player on that day for eight dollars, if he's a good player, I can keep him the following year at eight dollars, and and the third year at eight dollars. So we have you you essentially have the same situation as a real team where you have things going on in the off season and you're watching what's going on. Uh, whether a player is going to get a full-time job or whether he loses his job or whether he gets traded. All of those things that happen in the real world, when the Internet came in, it made it easier for people to play fantasy sports without having to do a live draft. In other words, you don't have to sit around a table any longer like we do. The game has just expanded exponentially with the internet there's over 40 million people that participate in fantasy sports all right so that that's like a 300 percent increase in the last 10 years the internet can help bring you the stats the stats can help bring you the wins the key to appreciating baseball is a better understanding of the game that can only be told through advanced statistics in short the future of being a baseball fan is being a nerd I'm surprised you guys know so much about a sport. Oh, Lisa, baseball is a game played by the dexterous, but only understood by the poindextrous. Using sabermetrics, even an eight-year-old girl can run a ball club with the sagacity of a Stengel and the single-mindedness of a Steinbrenner. Dang, the Simpsons already did it. MLB's story may be written in stats, but there is a type of baseball where the stats don't really matter even the most important statistic of all. We've done research in the last three years, uh, exit surveys, and we've done it in multiple ballparks, where the last question is who won tonight's game and what was the score. That's Kurt Hunzucker, Vice President of Marketing Strategy and Research for Minor League Baseball. And in the tens of thousands of questions, uh, 7% got it correct. So 93% of minor league fans don't know the score. That's why, in the eyes of minor league baseball, Having fun is more important than war, batting average, or even winning and losing. Since the early ages of baseball, fans go to minor league games to have a ball while watching local ball. But now, many of the players aren't hometown heroes. The future of who minor league baseball is trying to reach very much mirrors the demographic composition of the players participating in minor league baseball. You know, major league level, it's it's about 35, 34, 35 percent of the players are of Hispanic descent. It's over 40, more than 40 percent for minor league baseball. And then we've been doing extensive research on this for, for a number of years. At the next level down, whether it's high school or travel ball, you know, it's in the mid 40 percent. For kids starting off as entry level players, you're almost at 50 percent of participants are Hispanic or Hispanic descent. As the contingent of Latinx players grows, so does the number of Latinx fans, and minor league baseball wanted to find a way to convert those fans into park attendees. Fun? Latin? Two core identities collided into one big idea. The Copa de la Diversión platform is a event series building a relationship or amplifying a relationship with their Hispanic fan base. Kurt is being modest. The Copa de la Diversión literally translates to the fun cup and minor league baseball really means it they're pulling out all the stops to deliver the fun to the underserved latinx baseball fan 33 teams will play a series as a latinx inspired alter ego based on the cultures of the local communities 
the Hartford Yard Goats, will become the Chivos. The Sacramento River Cats will become the Dorados. The Corpus Christi Hooks will become the Raspas. Some personas are simple translations of beloved team names, but others have their roots deep in Latinx cultural quirks. In San Antonio with the Flying Chanclas, that came out of the clear blue sky. They're like, you know what, we, we brought together some community leaders, some of our fan base, and like, what best describes San Antonio? And they started talking about reminiscing of childhood memories and flying chanclas, you know, the grandmother throwing a shoe just kept coming up over and over. And it, it wasn't like, you know, she's so mean. It was like, it's one of my fond memories. At the time, it was terrible. But it is one of my favorite memories that, you know, my family and I would look back on. It's like, she was the nicest lady in the world until she had her sandal in her hand. And like, what a perfect name. And then it just took off from there. The Flying Chanclas are even giving back to the community that helped name them by holding a shoe drive for charity where fans can trade a pair of shoes for a pair of tickets to the game. Spanish translators will be on hand to help communicate with the expected throngs of Latinx fans, but it's going to be a lot more than that making the park seem welcoming and familiar. One of the core things they looked at was the food offerings, making it mirror what the community is like and what they like. Um, music, PA announcements in both English and Spanish. You know, I think one of the big things that we learned in last year's pilot program with the four clubs was we did quite a few uh, interviews of, with, with Hispanic players in Spanish and had those on the Jumbotron in between innings. Is, and that was an enormous hit, not just with the fans, but with the players themselves. Uh, when you got players speaking in their native tongue, uh, whether they're from uh, Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Venezuela, what, what have you, there was a much more, uh, there's, there's a level of ease and comfort. And so their interviews were more lively and just had a little bit more pep to it. And the fans loved it because it's got to, you just kind of get to see a different side of the player rather than maybe a, a quick, you know, 30 second interview in English. Even from, you know, banners and streamers in the ballpark just to make it more fun, more like a party, more of a fiesta type atmosphere. I think a lot of people go like, oh man, that looks like a great time and we're totally going. Next year, minor league baseball plans to have Copa team identities available for all 160 teams because the numbers of Latinx fans and players will only continue to skyrocket. The first pitch of the Fun Cup hasn't even been thrown out, but the miners feel good about the program's feature. And for good reason. Just check their seats. Six teams have already exceeded their annual projection. This has now turned hot market, using an industry term. We already have a replenish, our, our refill orders. Already ordered, I will pay extra for shipping to get it here as soon as possible. Our online store was pounding out boxes, shipping them out from our e-commerce store. A lot of clubs, they package tickets to the Copa games with hats, t-shirts, polo shirts, what have you. Brilliant, because people are like, I absolutely want to see the Flying Chocolates play on their first game on Cinco de Mayo. So you don't think Cinco de Mayo in San Antonio is going to be awesome when the Flying Chocolates take the field for the first time? I'll be there. Major League Baseball will turn ahead the clock once again this year to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the 1998 promotion. For at least the Seattle Mariners, it'll mean the return of the giant, dopey logos and silver gloves. But the real future of baseball won't step out of a DeLorean. It will come from new baseballs, 
advanced fantasy stats, the Latinx community, and countless other small changes that continue to push a sport built on nostalgia forward. Special thanks for this episode of the podcast goes out to Tom Verducci, Don Drucker, Kurt Hunzucker in Minor League Baseball, and Sabre. If you like the show, leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It helps get the narrative out to new listeners. Or you can just share it with a friend. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. And as always, for more narratives moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com.